Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is Intelligence Matters, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Tony Hiley is the former curator of the various historical collections at the Central Intelligence Agency. She is a walking encyclopedia of the CIA's fascinating history. She is also a magnificent storyteller. I just sat down with Tony to talk about the artifacts at CIA that she acquired and cared for. A discussion that will kick off a new series of episodes on real-life spy stories. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is the first episode of Intelligence Matters Declassified, spy stories from the officers who were there. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Tony, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show, and it is very, very good to talk to you again. It's wonderful to be back with with you again, Michael. Thank you so much. So, Tony, chatting with you reminds me of a certain spy plane and how it came to sit on a rather nice platform in the CIA parking lot. Do you remember that? I remember it very well. Um, This is back in in 2007, uh, leading up to the agency's 60th. And thanks to the support of the agency leadership, yourself included, We had the opportunity to collect one of just nine remaining A-12 Oxcart high-altitude reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, The A-12 was the CIA's predecessor to the Air Force SR-71 your listeners are probably more familiar with, and it was designed to replace the U-2 over the Soviet Union. So we're coming up this summer 
on the 64th anniversary of the U-2's first overflight of the Soviet Union, the 4th of July, 1956. Herbie Stockman was the pilot. And uh, Soviet radar had tracked that first overflight. So it was only a matter of time before uh, we've, we feared that the Soviets might shoot down the U-2, which they did on the 1st of May, 1960. So already 1956-57, uh, President Eisenhower knows he has to have another option. And the brilliant minds in our country told him we think if we fly a plane three miles higher than the U-2, so the U-2 flew at an operational altitude of 70,000 feet. So, so it's 1957, and we want to fly three miles higher. And while we're at it, five almost five times faster, we can beat the radar. And I just think that's an extraordinary national strategic goal. So by 1959, the contract for the A-12 ox cart, what a misnomer that was, uh, was on the drawing board. It was first tested in 1962, and it met its design specifications by 1965. But by then, the Soviet Union was being photographed from space by Corona, the first photoreconnaissance satellite. So the A-12 didn't have a mission until 31 May 1967, when CIA pilot Mel Vavadich came in hot at Mach 3.1 at 82,000 feet to photograph missile sites throughout Southeast Asia, part of the Vietnam War. And that, that, that intelligence that the A-12 gathered during those 29 operational flights helped save my dad's life. My dad flew 23 combat missions between 66 and 68 as the pilot of a B-57, and thanks to the A-12's intelligence, he now knew where the missiles were that could shoot him down. So, Tony, you were the curator at CIA for 20-some years, I believe. How did you come to do that job, and what does the job entail? So, I was actually the agency's third curator and had the honor to build on the work of two predecessors. The program started in 1988. So our job as curators is to preserve the tangible heritage of the Central Intelligence Agency. Our officers make history every day, and that those historical operations uh, sometimes generate items of historical significance that can help us remember that operation, that event, and make sure that the lessons learned from it are preserved for current and future generations. So we do that work through managing um, thousands of artifacts, through doing educational exhibits, through providing tours to our official visitors, uh, through publications, and uh, through the work that we do every day to preserve our history. So, so one of the things you did, Tony, that I found inspiring was a presentation you did each month to those agency officers who were just returning from war zones. And I wonder if you could tell us about that and, and what the purpose of those presentations were to, to people who had already been in the agency for some period of time. So we're, we're coming up on 20 years since... 9-11. And we have maintained uh, an operational pace, an extraordinary operational pace as an organization since then. And a good chunk of the workforce has served in uh, war zones around the world. 
And when they come back, they have a, a two-day uh, training course to help share their lessons learned and, re, uh, and help with that re-entry. And I had the honor for several years to provide their final briefing, which was an historical look at their predecessors, agency officers, who have gone to war over the past uh, almost 75 years now, even going back to our World War II predecessor, the Office of Strategic Services. So by simply telling stories of intelligence officers at war, um, we gave them, I think, a, a look at their context in the current operations and, and war zones they served in and put it into a bigger uh, historical context with uh, stories going back to World War II. Yeah. So, Tony, I would love to have you give our listeners a digital tour of the various museums and artifacts at the agency, a kind of walk around taking us through the various exhibits and pointing out some of your favorite artifacts and perhaps some of my favorites. I think this will be meaningful to our listeners because the vast majority of them will never get to see these exhibits. And maybe the place to start is with the OSS Museum, um, which is in the agency's new headquarters building. So if you're watching a movie and you're watching a flyover of the agency, it's the greenish glass building in the back of the original headquarters building. So Tony, tell us about the OSS Museum. What's the flow that a visitor goes through? What do you want people to take away from spending time there? So the OSS Gallery is our, our legacy exhibit. And what we hope visitors to the gallery will take away is that OSS wouldn't have existed but for two men, Wild Bill Donovan and President Roosevelt, that the Office of Strategic Services was a, a full source, full service intelligence agency. Donovan pulled together a think tank of the leading scholars and historians of the day, people like Sherman Kent, William Langer, uh, Walter Langer, uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. And their contribution to the craft of intelligence was all source strategic intelligence analysis. That's the work done by today's directorate of analysis. Donovan had a cue. His name was Stanley Lovell. He was a Boston chemist Donovan brought on board in 1942 to be the head of research and development. Donovan had said to him, Donovan said to him, Stanley, we need every underhanded trick and devilish device to help defeat the enemy. You will invent them. Start today. Uh, today's director of science and technology. Donovan had uh, operations officers like Alan Dulles as, as chief of station of Baron Switzerland, sending agents into Hitler's high command, helping broker the surrender of Axis forces in Italy, today's director of operations. And of course, Donovan had a world-class um, support operation, administrative and support to enable all of those functions, today's directorate of support. He didn't have a directorate of intelligence to do the digital side of things, of course, like we're structured today, but that all laid the foundation for uh, the agency that we know today. In fact, uh, I think we can say that had, not, had Donovan not accomplished all that he did in three and a half short years, uh, that it it's unlikely that Truman could have established the CIA just two years 
after World War II. And then by 1949, the Soviets have the atomic bomb and the Cold War is on. So we, we trace our foundations to the OSS. 30% of CIA in 1947 was OSS and lineal descendants still serve there today. At a time when 70% of our workforce has joined since 9-11, I think it's, an, it's imperative that they understand where they came from and where our origins are. So that's what we, that's what we learn in the OSS gallery. So uh, Tony, let, let me ask you about one piece in the OSS Museum that I think is incredibly special. It's a letter from an OSS officer to his young son. Can you tell us about that letter? And if you have it there in front of you, could you even read it to us? So I think the, the Helms letter that you're referring to is one of our, our most important heritage asset treasures. And Helms had joined the OSS in 1943, served in London. And uh, towards the end of the war, he may have been one of the first intelligence officers to get into Hitler's bunker down in Bavaria, where he very well may have picked up this piece of Hitler's letterhead. The historical record doesn't tell us exactly where he found this piece of letterhead. But on Victory in Europe Day, he wrote a note on it to his three-year-old son. And the note says, Dear Dennis, and I know it by heart, Dear Dennis, the man who might have written on this card three short years ago when you were born once controlled Europe. Today he's dead, his memory despised, his country in ruins. He had a low opinion of man as, as an individual, a fear of intellectual honesty, he was a force for evil in the world, his, his death, his defeat, a boon to mankind, but thousands died that it might be so. The price for ridding society of bad is always high. Love, Daddy. That's remarkable. And when, when did we receive that letter, Tony? We received that letter that Monday that we as a workforce learned in 2011 that bin Laden was dead. And that last sentence just raised the hair on our arms because we know only too well that uh, the price for ridding society of bad is very, very high. Uh, a simple look in our book of honor at the number of stars since 9-11 tells you that. So, Tony, there's another piece in the museum that, that always drew my attention because, as you know, I grew up as an analyst. And that's actually a, a psychological assessment of Hitler. Can you tell us about that piece? I think this is an, another amazing piece as well. And I'll refer your listeners to uh, CIA's website where we have an exhibit catalog on this, on the OSS gallery. So that they can, they can almost, uh, you know, read the, the um, catalog and, and visit the gallery that way. So in, in 1942, General Donovan Actually, he was, made, he was Colonel Donovan. He didn't receive his first star until um, 43. So Donovan commissioned a psychoanalysis of Hitler written by Walter Langer. And this was prescient. Uh, Donovan was brilliant. And he believed in using every possible means to understand our, our adversaries. And Langer's psychological analysis of Hitler 
turned out to be uh, very, very present, like I said. Uh, he predicted in this psychoanalysis, uh, predicted the military coup against Hitler in 1944, and he also predicted Hitler's suicide in 1945. So it's an amazing document. Maybe the last piece to talk about in the OSS Museum, which always draws the eyes of visitors, is the Fairburn Sykes fighting knife. Tell us about that. So William Fairbairn was a British special operations executive. SOE was the British clandestine paramilitary service that elements of OSS were modeled after. And he was a, he was a major Donovan brought on board from SOE to teach hand-to-hand combat up at Katakan Mountain Park up by um, Camp David. And Fairbairn believed that every fighting man should have a fighting knife but he wanted his knife to be used against the vulnerable points of the body rather than as, as a slashing knife like the military knife was. So he and his business partner, E.A. Sykes, is called the Fairbairn Sykes, uh, developed this knife at, for SOE, and it transitioned over to OSS as well. Fairbairn wrote a book on hand-to-hand combat that he based on on martial arts and and just dirty gutter fighting. And if you turn to the chapter on knife fighting, the first thing he tells you to do in a in a knife fight is um, bring a gun. You, <laughs> you really don't you don't really don't want to be in a knife fight. If anybody pulls a, a knife on you, then you you need to run like the Dickens. But uh, he, so if you see a Fairbairn Sykes fighting knife that has a unique scabbard with a pancake spatula on the end of it, that's specific to OSS. So resources were limited during the war. They couldn't gear up a whole production unit for the various units that were interested in this knife. So instead they went to a kitchen utensil company and saw that there was a metal die in place for the pancake spatula with those slats in it that could easily take a belt width of varying widths, a belt of varying widths woven through it. They stuck that on the scabbard and off to where they went. So it's one of our favorite artifacts as well. We still have more to discuss with Tony. This is Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, Tony, let's, let's leave the OSS Museum. Let's walk a couple hundred yards back to the original headquarters building, the, so the white stone building from the movie Flyovers. And this is, where, this is where you start most of your tours, right, in the agency main lobby. So take us there. Tell us about what's there and why do you start your tours there? We like to stand on the agency seal there in the lobby, right in the middle of the compass rose to symbolize that our guests, as they stand there, are standing at the center of intelligence with intelligence coming in from all points of the globe to the center. It's also where our commemorative installations are. We have a single star to the 116 OSSers who died during World War II. 
CIA's memorial wall is there as well. 133 stars on that wall. Uh, when I joined in 1999, there were 77 stars on the wall. 133 now. And every agency officer on that very first day swears their oath of office in front of that wall with 133 of our colleagues watching uh, and General Donovan looking over their shoulders. It's an amazing place to start your career. Uh, there's another memorial there that you and I worked on together, which is the Fallen Agent Memorial, where we honor agents like Popov and Pemkovsky and Tolkachev and Kuklinski, who also made uh, great sacrifices and risked their lives to get us the intelligence that we needed. So we leave the, the lobby, we go up to the upper lobby, which is our president's gallery, and our compound is named the George Bush Center for Intelligence after 41, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, who was director from uh, 76 to 77. And then that leads us to the Afghan gallery where, where we start uh, the gallery tours. So tell us, about, tell us about the Afghan exhibit. So the preamble to our exhibit on CIA's role in Operation Enduring Freedom, of course, starts with the attacks on our country on 9-11. So from each of the attack sites, we have representative artifacts. From New York, a piece of uh, a U.S. government safe that came out of World Trade Center 7. From Shanksville, a gym bag that belonged to one of the passengers on board Flight 93. Uh, Diora was the youngest passenger on 93, and she was on her way home to visit her family. Her mother donated her gym bag to us. It still has the Flight 93 sticker on it from the crash at Shanksville. And then the case that we have dedicated to the Pentagon contains some particularly poignant artifacts. Uh, you'll recall that Flight 77 crashed right through the Naval Operations Center Everybody, almost everybody in that part of the Pentagon was killed, as well as everybody on 77. And moments before the plane hit, a young Army sergeant had stepped out of the ops center to go to the men's room when all chaos broke loose. When he recovered, he took his shirt off, he soaked it in water, and he went back in toward the ops center to see which of his colleagues he could help. And he found a young naval officer who had been severely injured by the blast. The, the explosion from the aircraft had actually rolled in over his shoulder, melted the name tag on his uniform, but didn't touch the ribbons he was wearing that day. And we have the ribbons that he was wearing on display there in, in that first case. He was still alive, and the sergeant got him out of the building, eventually up to Walter Reed where the docks took over. Very long recovery, many, many operations, and his heart stopped twice on operating tables. Docs brought him back. Following a long recovery, he served on the 9-11 Commission. And then he made a decision to continue to try to make a difference, and he joined the Central Intelligence Agency. And he was a part of the team that helped lead the hunt for bin Laden for nine years, seven months, and 20 days. And there's a, there's a personal twist here for you with regard to the bin Laden operation and him, correct? Yes. So I had the honor in 2011 to tour the assault team through the museum shortly after the raid. And 
I usually judge my success with a tour group if I can make them laugh at some of my stories. You know, this is a very serious story, but uh, there's some there's always some dark humor in 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 an event and i had to work really hard with those guys they are definitely deadly serious <laughs> but i told them the the very same story i just told you and then it's very hard to shock these special uh warriors these these incredible uh americans that that do what they do for us but i said to them having told them the story of the officer those ribbons belong to, I said, and now I'd like you to meet him. He's with us today. Kevin was with us that day. And he stepped forward to this, this shocked group of assaulters and shook hands with every single one of them, passed a coin that only survivors of the Pentagon pass. And I stood there and watched their worlds just come together. It was amazing amazing, amazing mm-hmm. experience for Kevin as well as for them. So Tony, while we're on the Bin Laden raid, there's two other pieces that I would love to have you talk about. One is a scale model and the other are a pair of boots. It felt very good uh, several years ago to be able to add two additional artifacts to that Afghan gallery to put a punctuation point on it, if you will. And those two artifacts are a seven to one scale model of the Abbottabad compound that uh, CIA commissioned of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And their model makers used hundreds of pieces of all source intelligence to create this seven to one scale model and make it as accurate as possible. And the original model was used to brief the president, used by the operational planners to plan the mission, used by the assault team to prepare. And then the very same intelligence that made that model as accurate as possible was then used to build a full-scale mock-up of the entire compound. And it was on that mock-up that the assault team came in to physically practice for the raid. The other artifact that we include nearby are, are a pair of boots that belong to one of the assaulters who was on the helicopter that went down. And when they started training for the operation, those boots were brand new. And they did so much uh, fast line, fast roping to drop from the helicopter down to the X, so much of that practice that the rope actually wore a groove in the arch of one of, one of the shoes. So he wore those shoes through training. He wore them on the raid. Uh, he told us that when he got home that night after the, after the operation was over, he was able to tuck his son into bed. And uh, several months later, he presented the shoes to us for our collection. And then there's... Um so this is all in the, in the Afghan museum there. There's also a saddle in the Afghan museum. What's that all about? So I was sitting in my chair one February morning, 2002, reading the newspaper, drinking my tea, and read that Special Forces was on horseback in Afghanistan. And I, I thought to myself, if they're on horseback, so are we. So I went straight into work, and I contacted a friend of mine over in Counterterrorism Center, 
and I asked him if it would be possible to get a saddle out of Afghanistan so we could tell the story of our second team in. So the first team into Afghanistan entered on the 26th of September, 15 days after 9-11, so that's Gary Schoen's team. The second team went in um, on 16, 17 October, led by JR, and JR's team was actually on horseback for the first 10 days of their deployment, riding from their headquarters, which they had nicknamed the Alamo, to wherever General Dostum was, as they are serving as pathfinders to the Eastern Northern Alliance for the military that came in, uh, the task force dagger that came in two days after we did. So they spent 14 to 18 hours a day in those Uzbek saddles. There's no padding, just carpeting on stallions because we don't geld in this part of the world, uh, running operations from, you know, the back of a horse. So we had to have a, a saddle to tell that story. And I found out later how, uh, how it came to us. So the poor communications officer out in Mazari Sharif got the tasking. You know, the curator would like a saddle. Somebody <laughs> go get her one. So uh, he took an Afghan counterpart, an Afghan partner, down to the bazaar that day and bargained for the saddle. I think they paid $110 for it and uh, shipped it back to me. I learned later that a month after they had gone down to the bazaar to buy our saddle, that we lost that Afghan partner. So we always remember him when we talk about the saddle. Okay, Tony, let's leave the CIA museum and the Afghan exhibit there and retrace our steps back to the lobby, but actually go beyond the lobby to another hallway with another one of your exhibits called the Art of intelligence. Talk to us about that. We established an intelligence art collection back in 2004-2005. The agency's mission is to go where others cannot go and accomplish what others cannot accomplish. And so the art collection allows CIA Museum and our visitors to go where we couldn't go historically. We might not have a, an artifact related to that moment in time. And uh, this, you know, picture's worth a thousand words. Uh, the, the paintings enable us to capture that history and ensure that it remains accessible to the workforce. So with a generous donation of uh, 15 donors, we established uh, the core of the collection, which it turns out uh, are mostly aviation-related paintings, but you know I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> no, thanks to your dad. <laughs> thanks to my dad. Uh, although the workforce has given me uh, some uh, crunchy feedback uh, complaining that there are too many aviation paintings, and I was commiserating with a friend of mine in ground department one day, and he looked at me and he said, you know we don't walk to these places, so that was good enough for me. Uh, but we ha- we have done a strategic plan for the collection, and we're we're very busy to to fill in those gaps. So we now have uh, we just finished a painting, by the way, that uh, you'll be seeing here sometime later this year, uh, and we have uh, 24 paintings in the collection now. So my favorite is the painting of Virginia Hall. Can you tell us about that painting? Can you tell us about her? 
I think it's one of my favorites uh, as well. It's by Jeff Bass. And Virginia Hall was uh, a Baltimore native who joined the State Department in the 1930s and had various postings, suffered a uh, hunting accident while she was in Izmir, Turkey, and lost a left leg. Uh, she had hoped to join the State Department as a diplomat, but uh, wasn't able to. The State Department had State Department had a regulation back in those days that they couldn't post officers abroad who had lost a major limb. So she resigned and uh, traveled in France. Got caught in France when World War II broke out. She stayed and drove an ambulance for a while, actually. And then the British recruited her special operations executive recruited her to be a radio operator for an agent network in Lyon. Eventually, she was betrayed by one of her agents. She had to escape. Uh, she made it over the, over the Pyrenees that November uh, with a wooden leg and eventually made it back to London where she was picked up by the OSS and inserted back into occupied France on a British torpedo boat two months in advance of D-Day where she sent 37 intelligence messages back to London. And that's what the painting depicts. She would move from a different barn, sometimes in the morning, sometimes late at night, moving constantly so the enemy couldn't triangulate on her position, and sent those messages via a suitcase radio with the help of her French counterpart, Edmund Lebrat, who had rigged a temporary generator with a, a, a bicycle to generate power for her, her radio. After D-Day, she, uh, she linked up with a uh, Jedburgh team, a paramilitary operations officer, officers, and they together they trained 1,500 free French. At the end of the war, President Roosevelt invited her to the White House to receive the only Distinguished Service Cross. This is one of our nation's highest awards for valor, uh, one of the, and the only one presented to a female civilian during the war. But she was still operational. She was in Paris at the time. She thought of herself as an intelligence officer first, and she didn't want the publicity of going to the White House, so she politely declined. And instead, Donovan presented the award to her. It's a decoration that we display in the OSS gallery. We have her original. Uh, she received the award from him at the desk that we also have in the gallery, accompanied by her mother just three days before OSS was dissolved. She went on to serve in the agency, was one of our the first six women to join, and one of our first paramilitary officers. That's great. So, Tony, we started our discussion with an artifact that was an aircraft, the A-12. And so I think we should finish with another and that is that CIA, as you know, just acquired a particular aircraft that was used in the early days of the Afghan war after 9-11. Tell us about that. This is the a Russian-built MI-17, and it was the aircraft that the agency used to fly into Afghanistan 15 days after 9-11 to take the war on terror to the enemy. The team uh, was led by Gary Schroen, and Gary's mission is uh, Gary and his team's mission is a strategic one to work at a very high level to cement that coalition of cooperation with the Eastern and Northern Alliance. 
Aboard that aircraft are seven agency officers, three air crew, uh, two Afghan partners, 2,000 pounds of equipment, extra fuel, and $3 million. If I love the $3 flown- million dollars part, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever flown on an MI-17, you might describe it as 10,000 parts all trying to come apart at once. Uh, thanks to... Uh, Air Department, Special Activities Center, we were able to collect the clock off of 91101. So the aircraft uh, received a tail number two days after landing in theater in the Pensier Valley. 91101 was the tail number, and that identified it as a Northern Alliance aircraft. It had no transponder on it. So to uh, delineated as a friendly aircraft, the American flag and USA were painted on the horizontal stabilizers. So we, that's such an historic object, that aircraft. It was the first American air asset into Afghanistan. It enabled CIA's operations for those first three months and we wanted to, co- to collect it, but it still had an operational life in those early days. So we were able to get the clock off of it, and we displayed that for several years. We keep the clock set to 8.46, which is the time it was that the first plane hit the first tower. And then it took many, many years and the work of many, many people. Uh, and kudos to my successor, Rob Beyer, and his team, and the partnership all over the agency that enabled us to bring that helicopter uh, to its final display there at headquarters where it is a bookend uh, installation that speaks to not only the attacks, we have a piece of steel from the World Trade Center, but the agency's response aboard that helicopter 15 days after 9-11. So, Tony, you have been amazing with your time. I just want to ask you one more question, which is just in the, just in the 40 minutes or so that you have been with us, um, it is so easy to tell that you absolutely loved your job. Why did you love it so much? What was it about it? I think it was the opportunity to, to serve our beloved agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, and to honor the sacrifice of the men and women who every day risk their lives to get our policymakers the most accurate, up-to-date intelligence to preserve the national security of our nation. We never, most, most Americans will never know what we do on a daily basis. And the museum is one place where the stories that we can share with the public uh, can be told. Because the museum is at headquarters, most Americans will never get to see it, but they can visit our website. We push as much as we can out on the website. The museum operates within, under the auspices of the Center for the Study of Intelligence, which is our agency's historical think tank. So just ensuring the Center for the Study of Intelligence, the museum, our lessons learned program, our history program, oral history and emerging trends, do everything that we can on a daily basis to preserve the knowledge and the lessons learned that we make by making history every day and ensure that 
that knowledge is accessible, that it remains accessible to inform, instruct, and inspire current and future generations. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, sir. Great to be here. That was Tony Hiley. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.